welcome back to Public Books 101, a podcast that turns a scholarly eye to a world worth studying. I'm your host, Nicholas Dames. I'm an English professor at Columbia University and an editor-in-chief of Public Books, which is a magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship that's free and online. You can read the magazine at publicbooks.org. In this season of our podcast, we're exploring the ongoing significance, or some might say, the waning prominence, of the novel as a cultural form in the 21st century. In each episode, I sit down with fiction writers and scholars to try to figure out what novels, which have been around for at least 400 years, are still doing for us in the age of the internet, social media, and streaming entertainment. And today I'll be speaking with Elif Batuman, who's a novelist and nonfiction writer, and Merve Emre, a literature professor and cultural critic. We'll be discussing one of the novel's unique properties as an artistic form, specifically its ability to help us explore how consciousness works. By opening a window into characters' minds, novels help readers understand how other people experience the world and how power operates in our own lives. As a case study of how novels do this, we'll be touching on Convenience Store Woman, which is a short book by the Japanese writer Sakaya Murata. Convenience Store Woman was first published in Japan in 2016 and then translated into English by Jinny Tapley Takamori in 2018. We'll touch on that book as a way to explore broader questions about novels and political consciousness. I also want to add that this season we're partnering with Harvard Bookstore, an independent shop in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We love indie bookstores at Public Books, and maybe you do too. So we hope you'll consider buying Convenience Store Woman or any of the other books we discussed this season through Harvard Bookstore's convenient online shop. There's a link in our show notes where you can purchase books easily. So let's dive into my conversation with Elif Bataman and Merve Emre. My name is Elif Batuman, and I'm a writer. Um, I wrote two books. One is called The Possessed, and it's uh, nonfiction, comical, interconnected essays about Russian literature. And another is an autobiographical novel called The Idiot. And I've also done journalism and criticism. I spent a very long time in a PhD program in comparative literature, and I'm, I'm working on a sequel to The Idiot Now, which is called Either Or. I'm Merve Emre. I'm an associate professor of English at the University of Oxford. Uh, I'm also a nonfiction writer. I recently wrote a book on the strange secret history of personality testing called The Personality Brokers. And I'm also a literary critic and currently coming to you from the Wissenschaftskolleg in Berlin. Where it is much later than it is here. So, uh, so yeah, thank yes, you for yes, staying up or at least having the energy to, to do this right now. So, uh, Elif, you wanted to, you suggested that we talk about convenience store woman. And I was wondering if you could take a stab. I'm going to have both of you do this, but I'm going to have you go first, Elif. If you could take a stab about summarizing it in, in just a few sentences. What is this novel about? Okay. The sentence I came up with was, it is an examination of unspoken social and economic norms in post-deregulation Japan from the perspective of Keiko, an extremely literal, possibly autistic woman who in her 20s thought that she found the key to living a normal life via a part-time job at a convenience store. But now in her 30s, that doesn't work anymore and her life falls apart and she's sort of reading the tea leaves of what she's supposed to be doing. And thus it's a book about the horror of being a woman in your 30s. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's a fantastic sentence. I, I wonder if you have anything else you'd want to add to that. Uh, I was going to say that Whereas most novels that are about living under late capitalism tell you the story of how a person becomes a worker, I actually think this novel tells you the opposite story, which is what if the baseline condition is that everyone is a worker and what they're actually horrified of is becoming a person. <laughs> um, and so what I found sort of fascinating about Convenience Store Woman is that it tells the story of a woman who has become so identified or identifies herself so much as a convenience store worker that the possibility of becoming any more individuated as a person launches her into this kind of world of horror so that she has no choice but to go back to the convenience store. 
I want to hold on to that idea for a second, you know, because both of you work with on novels. I mean, the, the, the novel is a, a, an object of labor for both of you. <laughs> so speaking of, of work and, and being a person, um, now, you know, Elif, as a writer, you've worked across many genres. You've written a novel, as, as you just said, as well as nonfiction, literary criticism, journalism. But as a reader, and, and I mean here, you could, you know, whether I'd, as a reader for professional reasons or just as a reader in your spare time, is there anything you'd want to say about your, the history of your relationship to the novel? Has it changed over time? My, my theory now about the effect that novels had on my life is that they depoliticized me and led me into a path of heteronormative misery. But I've realized this through a course of, of therapy and I actually, I feel like the novel for me is like all coping mechanisms that one comes to at a very early age is that it's your salvation and it makes it able for you to live. And then it, you know, proceeds to deform the rest of your life. So that's something that I've been thinking about a lot. I'm trying to write a book now excavating the ways that I think I was depoliticized largely through my love of novels, which is something that happened in my late teens and, and early 20s. And I'm struggling with um, the right form to do that. Um, at first, I thought it was going to actually be a novel, and then that started to seem crazy. So I thought it would be some kind of polemic. And now I've actually gone around back to it's going to be, I mean, it's, it's going to be kind of both, but um, I've, I've sort of come back around to the, to the novel. Could you say a little bit more about what you mean by depoliticized? Um, yeah, I think that when I was a kid, I was um, probably like Merva. I would actually love to talk about this at some actual hotel bar in the future. But um, I mean, I think of Turkish culture as being sort of an outsider in between kind of culture. And my relation to it was I was sort of a, had an outsider relationship to Turkish culture where I was going back and forth a lot and just seeing a lot of... Um, I don't know, like, I guess what the kids call code switching, like just things that seem completely normal and ineluctable in one place seemed just bonkers in another. And nobody had heard of the same stuff. And the celebrities were all different and the rules were all different. And the, I don't know, everything was up for grabs. And I, and I also, um, grew up in a, in a very sort of stressed family with a lot of family stress and secrets. And I found novels to be the only mode of description that was talking about the things that I actually thought were interesting, which is like what goes on inside a house and what are the relationships between the people there. Like compared to what I saw in the news or in a history book, all of that stuff just seemed completely bogus to me. And I really, I mean, the, the novels that I was attracted to were often the ones that described the... Um, the disenfranchisement of women and the bullshit that women and children had to go through all the unfairness and all the hypocrisy that people sort of metabolize and assimilate and how there are still these moments of beauty and of interpersonal complexity and richness and novels made life seem worth living to me. They made life seem beautiful. Like my favorite, the ones that got me hooked that like the main line were for me, um, Eugenia Negan and Anna Karenina. Anyway, I feel like, you know, there's that famous quote, um, that Nabokov said that was the inspiration for Lolita, that it was about um, the first painting ever painted by a, a animal. And it was an ape at the Jardin de Plantes who painted the bars of its, the poor animal painted mm -hmm. the bars of its cage. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's like every novel and that there are not every novel, but all my favorite novels. And that a lot of what they were doing was like, but look at these bars. Aren't they interesting? Aren't they beautiful? Like, look how the light falls. This wouldn't have happened if there weren't bars or like, Anyway, I just feel like the novel led me to aestheticize my own kind of imprisonment, which was sort of natural for a child because you are in prison when you're a child. But I sort of preserved that mechanism into my early adulthood and like well, well into my 30s. And I didn't really understand the extent to which I was free and the extent to which I could use writing. And ideally now I hope the novel, now that I'm in my 40s, uh, before, but, you know, hopefully I'll figure it out before I die. Uh, but how the novel can be an instrument of freedom as well. Merve, do you want to do you want to add anything to? I mean, that's such a great account of of what depoliticization. Do you want to add anything to that, or does it look different from your perspective? Well, it does look a little bit different. I mean, I and if I take what you what you said about the in betweenness of Turkish culture, really resonated with me. I mean, I was raised by two physician immigrants. Me too. Yeah. 
I assumed I you were. Adana, right? <laughs> I was born in I was born in Adana, yeah. Were you also My born in Adana? Adana. Your dad, yeah. I was born here, but I spent every summer in Adana. Yeah. I actually have this theory that you and I are, like might be the same person. Um, but I, you know, so when we came to the U.S., I was I was four when we moved to Brooklyn, and I was very much raised with this. Um, you know, with this with this narrative, this immigrant narrative of, you know, we came here to allow our children access to opportunities that we didn't have. And those opportunities were always framed as very sort of professional managerial opportunities. You were going to be a doctor. You were going to be a lawyer. Maybe you would go into business, but they didn't even really know what that was. And I management, remember, right? yeah, management. Well, I worked as a, that my first job out of college was as a management consultant. And I remember when I told my parents that I was going to go get a PhD in literature, my mother like wept at my feet. And for me, it was interesting because studying literature and studying the novel more specifically did feel like an act of asserting the value of something that to my parents was useless and, and valueless. And that did feel interestingly, I mean, maybe narcissistically political to me mm-hmm. um, that I got to study something that within my parents' value schematics uh, was completely was completely worthless. Um, and I think that often when I think about what the novel means to me, it's very much with that dialogue about value going on in in the back of my in the back of my mind. And I think for me, what was interesting was that the novel in some ways or the novels that I fell in love with um, were novels that had a sort of finely tuned political sensibility. And a lot of the time that sensibility was directed against or was interested in sort of excavating uh, the prisons or the cages that men put women into or enabled women to put themselves into. Um, and I think this is, you know, one of the other novels that we were thinking about talking about or the series of novels we were thinking about was the, the Neapolitan Quartet. Um, and so that to me is a sort of perfect example of a series of novels that actually helped me see something about the kind of everyday, the way that everyday politics could scale up to something like a larger political imagination of of gender. Um, And so I think that my trajectory, maybe just because it starts as defending what seemed valueless to my parents, always felt somewhat resistant, even if it couldn't be completely resistant. I, I, this is the moment I have to say that it's it's this is funny for me because I'm half Greek, so um, you know this is this is a, I, I don't know whether that gives me proximity or a whole lot of distance, but um, you know I, I a lot of what both of you said resonated with me also as a, another uh, you know child of immigrants. So I thought we a good way to start with convenient Star Woman would be to talk about the novel's tone a bit. Merve, do you think you could take a stab at describing the tone of the novel? Well, I mean, to me, when I started reading it, I thought that it had this incredible anthropological tone. So what would happen if you took a person and you just plopped them down in the middle of a completely unfamiliar place with totally unfamiliar people whose habits were utterly um, extraordinary? And so to me, at the beginning, the novel had that kind of... um, flatness of tone or of observation that you see in some anthropological or sociological writing. But that then ends up being punctured by these moments, I think, of incredible humor, where all of a sudden you have a narrator who has done the kind of mechanistic work of learning how to live in this world of ordinary people. Um, And then the mechanism slips. And you see something of the person underneath who is ironically or paradoxically a kind of non-person or someone who isn't valued as a person. Um, And so I would say that it does have this kind of um, dark anthropological humor and that I think the I think that it's used in really interesting ways to be at moments sort of faux naive and at moments very sinister And that so much of this tension is the back and forth between that 
faux naivete um, and yeah. the recognition of how that naivete can be used to actually wound the people around yeah. her. Yeah. Uh, I, I really like the point, the anthropological tone, like, but anthropological, anthropological writing, like wishes it was like, like to me, it right. was, it almost felt, I mean, at first you think like this person is autistic or they have some kind of problem picking up cues. Like they're so literal. I actually didn't experience it as an oscillation. I felt like it was a good faith attempt to, I, I do see how you could see it that way and you could see it as like knowing or, or cunning or sinister, but like, I kind of took it to be, I mean, because we're all anthropologists, right? Like we all arrive and on day one, we have to start parsing all of these things and we get all of these, we get all this input about things that we're doing that are shameful or wrong. And we're very, most of us are very good at parsing those. And she just isn't like she, she gets them eventually. She understands that she's causing distress to people. Um, but there's a delay and that like everything is in that delay. And to me, the, the scene that really made it is very early in the, in the novel. She is on a playground and there's a dead bird and all the other kids are like, oh, poor Mr. Birdie is dead. And like, are we going to have a birdie funeral? And she's like, oh boy, when are we going to cook it and make yakitori? And <laughs> the reason for that is like, because her father is always saying, oh, yakitori is the most tasty thing. And like yakitori just means like grilled bird, like it, it, it's usually chicken, but it means bird. So like, you can just imagine like someone being like, someone is constantly telling me grilled bird is wonderful. Here's a dead bird. Why don't we make this wonderful thing out of it? And everyone's horrified and they're all like crying and screaming. And in a way, yeah, oh, it's dark that she wants to like cook this bird. But another, I mean, it's, it's like exposing the horror that we don't allow ourselves to see as someone who tries and fails to maintain a vegan diet for all the days of the week, this is like a form of bad faith that I think about a lot. And like, it, it, she's just questioning all of, all of the rules that we take for granted. What I think is, yeah. what I think is so good in that scene that you point out is not only that she doesn't quite understand why there's this like sentimental outpouring over the bird when people eat birds all the time, mm -hmm. but that they're also, this is the detail I love, that they're also murdering flowers she says, mm -hmm. right, they're murdering flowers in order to construct this grave for the bird. And so yeah, in, like totally. indulging their sentiment, they're actually doing more harm to other species that they mm -hmm. refuse to recognize, but that she can see. Um, and so it's, it's interesting, right, like to think about how um, to think about how like if you're somebody who isn't socialized into the codes of behavior or the codes of emotion, that all mm -hmm. the other characters seem to be socialized into the way you can actually see like other kinds of moral or ethical transgressions taking place. LFD, could you say a bit about the setting of the novel? Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the convini or the convenience store, what it means to set something there because nothing happens in there, right? Other than the things that happen all the time. I mean, it's a space of complete repetition. But uh, I wonder if you, if there's anything you would want to say about what it means to set a novel in a space like that. And it almost, with some, you know, some excursions to apartments, it's, it pretty much takes place in a convenience store. Um, so I started reading about the history of convenience stores in Japan. And I was like, you know, because when you go, like, you, and you can tell from the book that it's like, it's a very American kind of concept, the convenience store. And yeah, it's, it's super specific and cultural the way that it is there, you know, the thing that they shout at you when you come in and the all the different flavors of you know Japanese foods that that we wouldn't have here but yeah so the this article that I read about the history of the konbini was that um the convenience store started 70 years ago in America and 30 years ago in Japan like they and in the mid-70s they opened the first 7-Eleven, which was through some kind of cooperation with the U.S. so it really is this important form and, you know I was just thinking about um I don't know that there's always some kind of mediation going on between the American and somehow like foreign kind of mass capitalism that was imported there and the way that it's been internalized and assimilated so much into mm -hmm. daily life. Mm -hmm. this, yeah. this reminded me yeah. actually that I spent a New Year's in a convenience store in Japan which I had completely forgotten about until I started <laughs> reading this novel. But I was in, in 2009, I was in Kyoto for New Year's and it was so cold outside. We were at, um, we were at a festival outside a temple in Kyoto 
And there was a convenience store right there. And we were so cold waiting for it to, you know, turn midnight that we went into the convenience store and actually ended up totally missing the midnight festivities <laughs> because we were so um, we were so sort of amazed by the layout of the store. And I can even now remember like how incredibly bright the lights were mm -hmm. and that there was this kind of amazing juxtaposition. And maybe this is a form of estrangement that um, that that this novel at least makes me think of, but like the amazingly estranging experience of going from this from this dark temple fire where it was, you know, lit up by fire, where there were these, you know, festivities happening parades into the convenience store, which even on New Year's was completely bright, light just flooding every corner, completely organized, and people were still working as if nothing was happening outside of it. One of the things that's really interesting about this novel is it, it seems to ask you, like, how much change is necessary in order for a novel to exist? <laughs> because you know, everyone in this novel, every character, the narrator, they are always pointing to how little changes. And this is a question that was just coming up in my mind as I was thinking of, you know, being in that convenience store in Kyoto as the year was changing outside. And this novel set in a convenience store where nothing seems to change. Like, how much change do you have to have in order for the novel to function as a form? Um, and could you have a novel in which nothing changes? What would yeah. that look like? Yeah, yeah. This is—it's almost like a kind of Oblomov question, but 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 flipped weirdly. It's not about a refusal to to work. It's about nothing but work. You know, what 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 would plot look like if it consists of nothing but the cycle of your, you know, your job schedule or something like that? I'm kind of on the like Lukács bus or whatever that it's about the outdating of what seemed like eternal transcendental norms. And I feel like that's what happens in this book is that she goes there and she finds these seemingly eternal, this eternal, you know, a manual that she can follow and rules and nothing is ever going to change. But then actually sinisterly, you know, the, the handle of the knife and the blade of the knife have been replaced so many times. People keep getting fired. The goods on the shelves are all different. It's actually a mirage. And by the time she gets to her 30s, she's like Don Quixote, right? It's like this way of life that made perfect sense for her in her 20s that everyone accepted as normal, that she has a part-time job at a convenience store. Now that she's in her 30s, she's like, just by doing the same thing, she's like become some freak of society who has to be rejected. I thought that was kind of like eminently novelistic. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Murphy, mm -hmm. I want to I, I want to stick with work a second, but, but torque that question a slightly different way. There was a sentence that hit me in the novel where uh, the, the, so the narrator, Keiko, talks about all the women of her generation, and she says they're, they're now what, what she calls hooking up with society, either through employment or marriage. And I, I, I just want, wondered if there was something you wanted to say about that, uh, that locution, hooking up with society, and the, the treatment of heterosexuality and work as related or maybe even identical phenomena and maybe related through casualization. So I think you're right that there is a relationship here between productivity and, and heterosexual reproductivity in particular. I don't know, or I've wondered whether hooking up gets at precisely what the nature of that relationship is. Because mm. one of the interesting things is that Keiko is somebody who is supposed to be doing a job that is only a temporary job, right. but she transforms it into a permanent one. And a permanent one that by the end actually offers this like feeling of transcendence. Yeah. Um, and so the temporary becomes the transcendent. And, you know, maybe what that is pointing to is that increasingly hooking up is all we have. <laughs> increasingly, <laughs> that's like that's what productivity, that's what the organization of economic life is devolving into um, and so like that soon will be, will bring with it the same transcendence or will have to create the same sense of, sense of transcendence that something more stable, something more, you know, quote unquote fulfilling uh, would, would previously have. Um, but it is, you know, I was, I was curious to know what you guys thought about the sort of the repulsion she feels towards sex, because it's not just a kind of quiet asexuality, right? She talks about it, she's, she's horrified by it. 
there's a kind of grotesqueness to it. You know, the novel that kept coming in my head was was weirdly Jude the Obscure. And <laughs> insofar as there's like a, you know, a, the horror of sex is, is uh, you know, it functions as a lure into kinds of social integration that are, are fundamentally, you know, uh, soul-destroying or uh, warping. But the difference is, of course, in Jude the Obscure, you know, it, it, it's drenched in a, a kind of erotics. It wants you to feel that lure, whereas... Kameen Star Woman gives you no lure to latch onto. If anything, it's it's really the reverse. It's you know, there's there's nothing other than, I don't know, the erotics of shelf arranging. <laughs> the erotics of making sure that that the you know, the which, you know, uh sort of appealed to me actually. Like, oh, this this, this Yeah, that's this, where the joy is. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And 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 in some way that I could get. Yeah, I guess insofar as I saw a connection between the heterosexuality and the and work, um, I just saw them as both being compulsory and that it, it was, I, I was really thinking about compulsory heterosexuality. I So the book that I'm writing now was sort of inspired by, in part by um, some criticism that I got for the idiot, um, including for the New York Times, where like people were upset that they didn't have sex at the end. Um, and it was actually in the New York Times review, the guy was like, um, this made me think of this, like, of this criticism that Martin Amos once said about Jane Austen, that the thing that would have made Pride and Prejudice a better book would be if there was a 30-page sex scene between, you know, I forget, Miss Bennett and whatever his name is. And um, and I was thinking back, you know, at first my reaction to that was like, what a strange take, how odd. But then the more I thought about it, and it definitely wasn't only that reviewer, like, like readers came up to me, like one girl came up to me at a party and was like really angry. She was like, I was just waiting the whole time for them to consummate their relationship. And I was like, ha ha, like, oh, you're so kind to have read it. Like I thought that she was like making pleasantries and she wasn't like her face was just like really angry. And, um, and as I was thinking back, I was like, so the idiot was about, it was based on my college experiences as a freshman in 1995 to 1996. And I didn't write about anything that happened after that. Whereas what happened was in 1996 to 1997, I had like a huge meltdown. Um, I did have sex for the first time. After that, I got assaulted. And, you know, I, and, and a lot of stuff happened for me through kind of hookup culture, which began to seem really mandatory. Like it was made very clear to me by my friends and by the friends of the actual guy who I did not have sex with as a freshman, that the whole adventure with him had somehow been a failure, that the meaning of it was in having sex. And I, you know, and I, I, I wasn't like, you know, I was very susceptible to romance, like to, you know, it's just the, all of the mechanics that I knew about, like, you know, genital intercourse were just really gross to me. So what I, you know, then later when I got older and read Marcuse about like the, you know, putting all of taking Eris out of, in order to enable people putting their Eris into the workplace, the, just as the day is fragmented into the work day and leisure, so is the human body divided between the genitals, which are for pleasure and everything else, which is for work. And um, it, it just started to make me think that how much um, de-eroticization of life in general do we put up with by having it all sort of like pushed onto genital heterosexual intercourse? Um, in my case, I felt like that that really happened. And I just saw her as someone who was like, it just didn't work on her. I don't know. And I, you know, I see now I'm, I'm now the, the, my, my partner now who I've been living with for three or four years is a woman who always identified as a lesbian, which I guess so there were like, when we talk about our, our childhood and our adolescence, there are so many kind of like myths about, um, men and so many ideas of patriarchy that, um, they just didn't work on her. Like they just didn't catch. And I, I keep asking myself, like, what was it about, me, what was it about my family dynamics? Um, and I just found a picture of someone on whom they didn't make sense at all. And she wasn't, you know, she wasn't interested in trying it. She was really like contented herself with the heiress that she could get, which was the heiress of shelf arrangement. I, I found that very kind of moving and interesting and, and almost, I mean, like it's super dark, but I almost feel like there's some sort of like utopian potential in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's amazing, though, that um, and quite funny that for that, the repulsion that she feels towards sex for her sexual marginalization, when she looks at the very end, when she goes back to the convenience store and she looks into the store's window, 
what she thinks of in that final moment is her is her nephew, right? She thinks of a of a baby. Yeah. And it left me sort of wondering, like, what does the baby of the woman in the convenience store look like? Like, what, what is the what is the I mean, is, is the mirage or the the imagined reflection of the baby just there as like a, a, a deferral or um, a kind of vague sh- a ghostly shadow of what she will never have? Or is it pointing toward um, is it pointing toward her and the convenience store having being able to generate something together in the future? Like the ending was sort of interestingly, yeah. interestingly yeah. Am- ambiguous for me in that way. Elif, your, your novel, The Idiot, uh, was both a reference to and itself a kind of Bildungsroman, in a way, a, a novel of formation. And I, I, I did want to ask you, as somebody who's obviously thought a lot about this, if you thought that's a useful category for a convenience store woman. Is, is this in any way a Bildungsroman, or is this a novel that just can't be in that category, partly because you know, the central character is already formed and no no future formation can really occur. But I, I, so I'm, I'm curious your thoughts about that. Yeah, I, I thought that was a really interesting, I think that's a really interesting question. And I, I was thinking about it with The Idiot too, um, which is, it's a novel of education that she's at college, but um, I understood this more kind of like talking to book groups and talking to readers. Um, the person in the idiot is, is already quite odd, you know, and she's already that way when the book starts. It, it leaves out childhood. And um, I've been thinking a lot more about formation. I don't know. The take that I have on, on the novel now is that like the world is completely crazy in ways that we are increasingly realizing and that that craziness is really, I mean, I think that the case study for this is the Trump presidency, that there's this craziness that is created in private families that's privatized and that we refuse to treat as political and it creates these horrific political outcomes. And that kind of pipeline from childhood and family to large political outcomes um, which is something that sort of like second wave feminists were able to do that to some extent with the lives of women, like, you know, to make what seemed like private seem public, but that hasn't really been done for childhood yet. And I kind of think that that's the next frontier. And that's something that the novel has always been doing. And it's, you know, the novels were doing that before Freud articulated the importance of early childhood development. And, you know, Freud was a big novel reader. So probably, you know, what came from there. And so there's some building that is, seems like it's like, it's left out of convenience store woman. And in her next novel, Earthlings, she goes into it a lot more explicitly. There's a lot more about the person's childhood. But I do think that, um, like the reason that Bildung's Roman is such an enduring form is that, um, insofar as the novel is there for defamiliarizing, it's for, for exposing the norms that we follow and the conventions that we follow for being as arbitrary and culturally constructed and contingent as they are. Um, that's, you know, one way to sort of expose that is to going before to the time before they were formed and it, you know, the starting point, you can choose whichever one you want, but I do think, you know, maybe it's not an exhaustive building to remind because it doesn't show how she got all of the ideas and it doesn't you know, yeah. start all the way back. But I do think that it's fair to say that, that's what it's doing. It shows how she got some ideas. It showed those ideas being outdated and it showed her kind of trying to figure out what to do and how to form a new set of ideas to go forward. And then ultimately going back on the old ideas. Yeah. Oh, I, well, I was going to say, that's actually why I sort of read it as a midlife crisis novel. <laughs> like, you know, that the, the, the convenience store, the rhythms of the convenience store as an institution are sort of like, the rhythms of a of a marriage they're like they're they're soothing you know where everything goes you know what your day-to-day routine is going to be it's an adultery novel it's an adultery novel no that's exactly what i think it is i think it's an adultery novel where she ends up back with the with the partner that she that she cheated on um (laughs) and the shihara character um you know uh for all of his, for all of his bluster, he's just the kind of the, he's like the temporary side piece that then gets, that then gets discarded. And there's that wonderful moment at the end where she goes, um, like my animal self, my convenience store worker self, which I think is so, (laughs) 
it's so deeply funny that that sort of that coding of the animal self as the institutional self. Yeah, boy, it's it's a good point. I mean, Shahar is so, uh, just as ridiculous, non satisfactory as any of the men in Madame Bovary, right. as far as you know, a possible option. Yeah, yeah, right. This podcast is a production of Public Books, a free online magazine of ideas, arts, and scholarship. I'm Caitlin Zaloom, and I'm Sharon Marcus, and we are the founding editors of Public Books. One of the reasons we started Public Books was we were both tired of opening up the available book reviews 10 years ago and experiencing all different kinds of rage at who was being left out of the conversation. The books that weren't (laughs) being reviewed, the people who weren't getting to do the reviewing. And I thought, you know, instead of being mad all the time, I can just create the change I want to see in the world. So sorry, I laughed at rage because it's. I, I laughed at the truth of it while also worrying about whether or not rage was going to sell. I'm fine with being associated with rage, and I don't think it's going to alter my image in the world. So you know, we we've been talking about convenience star women for a while, and I want to I want to sort of zoom back out and think about the central question that that this podcast series is is trying to engage, which is what value the novel still has at, at right now and how this kind of centuries-old form might still benefit readers in any of the ways that we might think that that could happen. And so, Elif, I want to start with you and ask what you think this novel does provide for a reader right now. I guess the framework in which I thought about it was like... Um, what is a novel that's doing something that people could not get through any other form than the novel. And for me personally, at the time that I read this, I read it in 2018. And, you know, part of the reason was that it's, it's quite short and it's fun and it's a page turner. And, you know, I think lots of different people will enjoy it and can enjoy it. And it's quite accessible. But at the time that I read it, um, I was reading a lot about, the deregulation, economic deregulation in Japan and the rise of this Furita class of, you know, incidental workers. And I was also reading um, Compulsory Heterosexuality and I was also reading The Dialectic of Sex by Shulamith Firestone. And, um, you know, I was kind of taking in all of these different ideas, but this novel really made, gave them an affective reality that I could really enter into. And I just felt like that's something that's so valuable that the novel can do is that, I mean, this is going to sound super cliche, but it can bring ideas to life. I think that there's a bigger gap than we necessarily think or know between the things that we know abstractly or intellectually and the things that feel true to us. And that the novel is a way of kind of like illustrating them, uh, illustrating the abstract truths that we may think that we already know into a kind of like visceral or affective reality that makes us realize that we didn't actually know them so well to begin with. Yeah. How... Just to press you on that for a second, I mean, this idea of bringing ideas to life, can you say more about how that happens? Because it, it one thing that strikes me is that it could happen in two ways. One would be to, almost like the anthropological way, to show you something that you didn't know about or some form of life you, mm-hmm. you weren't aware about. And the other would be, which almost sounded like what you were saying, is that, in fact, it's to show you in a slightly defamiliarized way something you actually already know mm-hmm. and... Um, are not acknowledging or are, are taking for granted in some way, I, you know, something that you are familiar with, but haven't, haven't quite let percolate. Yeah. I was talking more about the second one, although the first one is also totally true. Also, if you think of the novel as having a defamiliarizing purpose, yeah. One way to do it is to show you the experience of someone who's in a very different situation and make you realize that, Oh, we're not so different after all. And how can I translate from that into my life? Uh, and the, the one that I think about more, um, I guess because I'm a, like a person who's internalized a lot of um, Western imperialistic norms is the, you know, the one of showing the, the one real universal civilization uh, and uh, which, which we all as readers know. So yeah, the one that we already know. Yeah. Yeah. Merve, do you have thoughts about what this novel does right now? And, and, you know, something you'd be able to say to somebody who hadn't read it and uh, you might want to get interested in it. I was thinking about how, easy it would be to read this novel as a fairly 
straightforward manifestation of certain arguments about what work does to us or what the condition of personhood is under late capitalism. And I was thinking about what it would mean or how this novel shows what people or what character would look like if we were to take those arguments very, very, very literally. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that part of the humor of this novel, and I think one of the things I like about it is that it is a comedic novel. And I think that those are in really sort of short supply these days. I, I It's just mm-hmm. a deeply funny novel. And I think part of its humor comes from showing that the theoretical world mapped by arguments about what capitalism does to the individual um, doesn't actually match the world that we live in, right? This isn't the world that we live in. And that's the comedy that this novel produces is the gap between the world we recognize as ours and what the world of the novel is and what the voice of its narrator sounds like. Um, And so I think in that sort of odd and maybe like backwards way, it, it does allow us to see something like the residual nature of character, the residual nature of, of selfhood, that we aren't living in this world, <laughs> yeah. um, that there is still the capacity for a kind of selfhood, however compromised, because people don't walk around looking and speaking like this, because our animal selves are not our convenience store worker selves. <laughs> and I think right. maybe to end point earlier like that there is something utopian about this novel maybe that is that kind of distance that the novel measures between its world and ours through its comedy through its through its estrangement of a kind of theory of the person under late capitalism is precisely what's utopian about it that yeah. we're not we're not yeah. we're not there yet you know <laughs> we're not <laughs> there yet sometimes. we're close yeah, yeah we're close yeah. but we're yeah. not but like what's funny about it is that we're not fully there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i love the point about how funny it is because that does seem like the most important thing about the book and um and i've been thinking lately about humor as a as a way of questioning to me the funniest scene in the book is when she she decides that this guy is going to become her boyfriend. And so she keeps him in the bathtub and like feeds some garbage and he just sits in there and plays on his phone. And the first thing that she does is call her sister. And she's like, there's a man in my apartment. And then instead of being scared, the sister's like, oh my God, that's so wonderful. And like everyone is acting like this is the most fantastic thing that happened to her. And to me, what was really funny and kind of utopian about that is like, I really had that experience. I mean, I was, there were t- there was a time in, my thirties where I was, I was married. It was kind of a green card marriage, but it was also kind of real. Like I married my boyfriend so that he could leave his exploitative job that was like holding his visa over his head. And then we weren't living together, but like sometimes people would be like, talk to me as if I wasn't married. And I would be like, oh no, actually like I am married. And like, I just experienced so many times this huge relief that would radiate from people. I remember one of my editors in particular, who was like, oh, you're married? Oh my goodness, tell me about your husband. And I just remember like, it all, like it, it not to say anything bad about about my, my former husband. He was he was great. Like he wasn't, you know, living in the bathtub eating dog food, but he, <laughs> but, you know, he could have been, he could have been, nobody knew anything. And I, and reading that just made me think like, a lot of this is, is my own personal issues, which um, are, are sort of like related to patriarchy, but aren't identical with it. So I don't want to like blend them together too much. But like, I always had this idea that like my relationships with men were, were somehow doomed and that they were all you know going to be doomed, but they were also like intensely meaningful and the, the only really meaningful thing. And like, oh man, you can't live with them. You can't live without them. And then there was just something about that image of that guy in the bathtub where it's like, oh my God, if you got rid of him, you could take a bath in your bathtub. <laughs> You'd be no worse off. Like it just seems, it seems so liberating and kind of wonderful to me. Yeah. You know, I mean, one of the one of the things that raises about the question of, you know, of, of the novel as a as a form is like, what would the novel look like if we just did get rid of sex, if we got rid of relationships, heterosexual, homosexual, queer, whatever, right? Like what would what would happen to the novel if um, you took very literally her shock or if you inhabited her shock that 
I couldn't believe they were putting gossip about store workers before a promotion in which chicken skewers that usually sold at 130 yen were to be put on sale at the special price of 110 yen. What on earth had happened to them, right? That to me is the <laughs> funniest moment. Scene. It's yeah, it's it's wonderful. Like she cannot believe that what they're interested in are the love lives of these people that they don't even know. And isn't that like why we read so many novels? Because we're interested in the like romantic fates of people that we don't even, of these made up characters that we don't even know. Like what would happen to the novel if that were no longer a a, a structuring principle of it in any way, shape or form? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's, 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 it's kind of hydraulic. Like it would go somewhere else. Like, to me, what was so moving about that scene that you described is she thought that this store manager, she's seen the different store managers come and go, and this is number eight, and he's the best one because he's the one she can really talk to about like, oh, the weather's hot today, so we have to move the barley tea, so it's in the front. And she really has these conversations with him that she finds fulfilling, and she thinks that they're on the same level. And then when he finds out she has a man at home, he's like, oh, you should leave your job immediately so you can get married. I guess you're going to want to have kids now. And she's like, wait, so that whole thing that we had wasn't real like so it is it's the same structure like it's the same kind of interpersonal you know it's, it's just that's the that's the romance maybe mm-hmm. that she has with the, yeah. with the manager so i i have been thinking a lot about like oh if we don't se- you know separate if we don't do the marcuse thing like if we just want to like diffuse eros into everything like what is it what is it going to do to the novel and at first i thought we couldn't have it but now i feel like the novel is going to survive and that in some way it was like made for that to happen but i don't have a <laughs> well, I think I think you get more comic novels. So I think you'd get more yeah. novels like this one. I think you get more mm-hmm. novels like Helen DeWitt's Lightning Rods. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you yeah. get more novels like yeah. Fran Ross's Oreo. Yeah. Right. And yeah. that, I mean, to me at least, is a very sort of cheering prospect. Yeah. Boy, that sounds nice. That sounds nice, like the end of Pathos yeah. for a while, at least. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. I, I, I want to end with a, a question for both of you, actually. And uh, and that's if either of you has a kind of unpopular or contrarian or controversial opinion you ha- about a novel that you want to share, we'll say this is a space in which you could you could offer that opinion. Yeah, novels are too long and too many things happen in them. <laughs> <laughs> which can't be said of this novel, right? And, and, and yeah, yeah. The, yeah. And, po- yeah, and po- yeah. poetry is just shapes, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, let me think, yeah, let me think. Yeah. And if, do you have a, con- a contrarian opinion about a novel? <laughs> I mean, it's not going to be contrarian with you guys, but like, when I was growing up, there was the one about like great art can't be political and like characters have to be like, you can't make any, because then it's lecturing. Like, I think that a lot of the, um, what was presented to me as like aesthetics and politics are fundamentally opposed was like taking like really bad political novels as a, as a model and was actually taking a kind of political novels that were sort of fetishizing power in the, in the same way and then taking, taking them to be they weren't actually political novels. Then I was thinking, I don't know, I started to write notes about this and I don't know, this might be completely incoherent, but I was I was just thinking again about Rene Girard and the unity of novelistic conclusions, which was an essay that like me so upset when I was a grad student where he's like, like basically the, the thing that I took away from that was like at the end of every novel, there's a part where the person realizes like that party I wanted to go to was stupid. And they like, you know, turn their back on everything they did. And like, it happens usually on their deathbed where Don Quixote is like, oh, I don't want to be a knight anymore. Or in the red and the black, he's like, oh, I don't want to be like Napoleon. I'm just going to sit in the cell until I die. And Rene Girard is like, oh, this is this like great moment of like Christian realization and renunciation. And part of me was very convinced by that. But then another part just found it really like kind of anti-human and, and life negating and and sort of like not true to the what the experience of reading the novel is because when you're reading the novel you're not reading it for the end where they're like oh everything that I did was wrong you're reading it for the whole beginning where they're doing all the stuff that turns out to be wrong later like Proust is a great example of this right like yeah. he yeah. he's like does all these things that are like stupid and that are a waste of time at the end he's like ah thank goodness I wasted my time because these are the novels of you know these are the materials for my great novel and there's kind of a there's kind of a model of the novel that I feel like was presented to me in graduate school as like that we have to turn ourselves into works of art and like the narrator and Proust is this like fully realized person. But then like, what does he do with that realization? Because by then he's so old, like all he can do is just like write his book and die. I was thinking about Ferrante, like when you read those books and that like at the end, 
she's wasted a lot of time that she doesn't try to redeem. Like, I was just thinking about, like, when, Maribel, when you were talking about sex, like, all of those descriptions of sex with her husband, like, how awful they were. Like, she didn't get anything from that. It was like, it, it was just none of it should have happened. But, 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 but at the end, yeah. the person who the word waste attaches to is Nino. She looks at him and she goes so much wasted labor or something like that. She goes so yeah, much yeah, wasted, yeah, totally. so much wasted work, you know, so much wasted work on this man. Yeah, completely. And is there a way that we could like recognize waste? Also recognize the moments of, like with Nino, there's also like parts of the Nino plot are really like sexy and fun and exciting to read. And that, you know, is there a way that we could sort of like acknowledge that and like keep that? I don't know, now I'm really into Marie Kondo. Can we just say that like, you know, this thing, it sparked joy in its time, it served its purpose and like now we can let it go and it doesn't have to be like, you know, this, okay, I guess I'm just going to like lie down and die now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's like a healthy approach to most of your exes and maybe most novels too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This thing sparked joy in its time. Now we shall let we shall let it go. But I mean, I I, I think well, I don't know if it's an, a controversial opinion about a novel, Nick. But I do find, and maybe you can help me think about why I feel this way. I actually kind of hate it when people talk about the novel as if it were some kind of you know overwhelming homogenous construct out in the world because I don't think I could talk about something like convenience store woman and say uh what's the novel that just won the booker Shiggy Bane. Yeah. yeah like yeah. I don't think yeah. I could talk about those two novels in the same breath and tell you anything about the novel as a form and I wonder yeah. why and I didn't used to feel that way and I wonder hmm. if that's because I think that there's a kind of faux cultural aggrandizement of the novel at a time when it is increasingly a minor cultural form. Mm -hmm. And that speaking about it in that way doesn't do enough to recognize that. And one of the things that I like about this novel in particular, and maybe the reason why I increasingly read a lot of novellas, um, is because I think that there is some uh, virtue right now in defending the minor. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. in defending, yeah. I mean, I don't think I was entirely joking. I was quoting a friend when I said that, you know, novels are too long and there are too many things going on in them. But but I think maybe what's so brilliant about this novel is that it's not long and it's sort of asking, like, what's the what's the bare minimum of action or of change that has to happen in order to be able to call something a novel or to make it recognizable within yeah. within the form. And that to me actually goes very much against the invocation of the novel as a major and, and homogenous cultural force. Yeah, I think I, I I can hear that voice that speaks of the novel, and it seems to come out of like 1965, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and this kind of competition for mastering it. And as old as that voice sounds, though, there is this way in which it's trying to distinguish the novel from other media in a way that maybe wouldn't have been the case in 1965 in quite the same way. I mean, we've been talking about about time wasted, and uh, you know, of course, there's a lot of a lot of technologies for time wastage that we've probably all been engaged in in recent months, and maybe the novel's one of them. You know, maybe it's just another another way to pass the time or kill time or escape into a different kind of time. But is there anything that's different about about that form of time killing than, I don't know, scrolling through my phone uh, anxiously at 10 p.m. or or getting lost in some sort of TV serial, you know, just, you know, night on end? Or is are those distinctions kind of meaningless? I kind of like the, I don't know, I, I totally get that it's pompous and annoying when people talk about the novel. At the same time, I I do like to think about like the Neapolitan novels and convenience store woman as being the the same or part of the same thing. Like I think it it can be fun to think of very like you know because what has more extraneous characters and things happening than the Neapolitan novels, but I <laughs> yeah. I, I still really like them. Right? <laughs> it's just sometimes it's fun to think of two really different subjectivities as um, colleagues as being in a collegial relationship. Mm -hmm. And I guess to me the the thing that's interesting about the novel is like compared to scrolling through a phone or reading a magazine or watching a TV show is it's really, you get to see one subjectivity at play 
you know, if, you, if you're scrolling through Twitter, everyone's contradicting everyone else. If you watch TV, each episode is written by someone different. It's directed by someone different. You're always having to do this kind of like, you know, a lot of weight is carried by the fact that the actors' faces are the same. And it kind of lets you gloss over the fact that they're like contradicting themselves. And of course, like, you know, novelists contradict themselves all the time. But there's, you know, some kind of standard is held there by the fact that someone, some really conscientious person who was, you know, by this point, not doing it for money, like someone who was really doing it because they thought it was important because writing a novel is, is horrible and poorly paid and it's really like not anything that anyone would do if they didn't really care about it. Um, I don't know. That, that's why I like novels, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Mary, can I, can I just go back to what you said there for a second? Because it sounded like you... You know, again, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to use the the phrase. It sounds like you're you're defending the novel, but in an interesting way. You're you're def- there's something kind of optimistic about what you just said in that the the fall of the novel into minorness, like it's a minor art form, might be a good thing for it. It was always a minor art form, wasn't yeah. it? I mean, that yeah. that's part of the and and maybe this just goes back to how I started, like talking about my my own. Um, arrival to the novel as a, a defense of its um, valuelessness or uselessness, mm-hmm, rather, mm-hmm, within my parents' mm-hmm. sort of scheme of, of values. But what Innocent just helped me understand something or helped me frame something that I was going to say, which was that I always fall asleep watching Netflix or scrolling through my phone, and I actually never fall asleep reading a novel. Yeah. Uh, and I, I wonder if that does have something to do with voice. I, I do think it has something to do and if with what you're saying about the ability to feel like you are experiencing or coming into contact with a highly sort of concentrated utterance, a highly particularized, a highly concentrated mode of expression, and that you're not sort of being crowded or thronged by the dizziness of, you know, multiple avatars, multiple actors, multiple screenwriters, multiple directors, but that there is something that feels sort of singular and unique and that you get called by that. You know, I guess what I'm saying is that if I'm thinking about why I fall asleep in front of those other media forms and not in front of the novel is because the novel seems to be offering a kind of um, a, 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 like a pillow talk that's directed specifically at, at me. Well, and that's like, it's the closest thing to your experience. Like your experience isn't that you're this like, you know, this thronging vortex of different subjectivities. Your experience is like there's you in a box and you're going through the world and like constantly processing all of this stuff. And it's quite lonely. So there's, you know, it's wonderful to me. It's very relieving to to see someone else doing it in a novel and to get to participate in it. Although, Mary, when you were talking about not falling asleep, I just thought this is a very polite person who feels (laughs) that there's like a novelist. So it would be like falling asleep in the middle of someone talking to you as opposed to falling asleep. No, but that that is how I feel. But see, I fall asleep when my husband's talking to me all the time. So I'm not, I'm not, (laughs) I'm not polite in that way. I'm not polite in that way, but I don't fall asleep when the novel is speaking is speaking to me. But, but I also disagree with what you said, but it's so interesting because I do sort of think of myself as um, having sort of multiple and different subjectivities that I can never quite figure out how to adjudicate between. And then the comfort of coming into contact or the consolation, I don't know if consolation is the right word, but the comfort certainly of coming into contact with a form that can hold all of those things together in a single frame, right? Um, And and that's what I want to hear. That's the voice that I want that I want to hear, because I don't think for me, at least other media forums don't do it in the same way. Yeah. Thank you very much, both of you. This has been this has been absolutely fascinating. And I look forward to going home and and, and not looking at my phone. (laughs) Um, That's that's my that's my resolution for tonight. And that's our show. A huge thank you to Elif Batuman and Merve Emre for sharing their thoughts about novels and consciousness. You can find links to their work at publicbooks.org slash podcast, including essays that Merve has written for public books. You'll also find a list of further readings put together by our guests in case you want to read further or use this material in your classes. We'd be so grateful if you would rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show there or on Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. And next time on Public Books 101, I talk to the novelist, poet, and essayist Garth Greenwell, as well as Daniel Wright, who's a scholar and cultural critic. We investigate how novels help us think about intimacy, sex, and how humans relate to each other. 
So I hope you'll join me for part three of Public Books 101, The Novel Now, as we wonder how do novels help us think more expansively about intimacy. This podcast is a production of Public Books in partnership with the Columbia University Library's Digital Scholarship Division. Thank you to Michelle Wilson at the library for partnering with us on this project. This episode was produced and edited by Annie Galvin with production assistance from Kelly Dean McKinney. Our theme music was composed by Jack Hamilton. Special thanks to Audrey Stort at Harvard Bookstore and to the editorial staff of Public Books for their support for this project. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you next time.